Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're calling this year the Year of the Bible as we read and study through the Bible cover to cover. On August 25th, we'll kick off the New Testament along with home-based small groups who will study the weekly reading together. If you'd like more information about any of this, visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Good morning. Would you please stand with me as we read the teaching text for today, which can be found on Pew Bible page 1380. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father, thank you for um, sending us your Son, for giving us your word. and for teaching us how to talk to you. I pray that John will be receptive to your leading and that we may be receptive to your leading as well. In your name I pray, amen. I believe very strongly in the power of prayer. When I was a little boy, I used to pray every night for a new bicycle. Then I realized the Lord in his wisdom doesn't work that way. I just stole one and asked him to forgive me. Uh, and I got it. Of course, now I pray a simple prayer every morning. It's an ecumenical prayer. Whether you're Catholic or Jewish or Muslim or Hindu, I think it speaks to the heart of every faith that goes, Lord, please break the laws of the universe for my convenience. Um, I think people at the last service thought that played by accident. Like, like, why did that just happen? Somebody just video bombed the church. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Ben gets it. How, who had heard of Emo Phillips before that? Wow, Emo Phillips people. I love it. Um, we're going to talk about prayer today. How many would say by show of hands that you, uh, you're not satisfied with where your prayer is your prayer life is right now. Like, it's not where you'd hope it to be. Put your hand really high to encourage the other people who are insecure in their prayer life. Okay, great. Craig's is pulsating with agreement. Um, when I was a little kid, I grew up at Woodlake Assembly of God. When I grew up at the church, they were at 31st. They moved out south. And the pastor now, Jamie Austin, was a teenager in the youth group when I was a kid. And so I love Woodlake. Jamie and I still text. And uh, at Woodlake, we knew how to pray. Uh, we knew how to pray with passion and with fire. And even when I was a little kid, five, six, seven, eight years old, we were encouraged to pray. 
And so my buddies and I, during children's church, we had like a secret sign. We'd go like this. And that meant we were going to circle up and pray together. And Mimo and Danny and Ryan and Dusty and I would all get together and as children, share prayer requests and as children, pray together. And I love that I had that foundation. When uh, we used to have Sunday night services at Woodlake, and Sunday night service always included altar time, which meant you went up for these extended times of prayer that was really sweet. And I, I soaked those altars with my tears, with this sweet awareness of the presence of God. And I loved praying in the Assemblies of God because we prayed with fire and with passion, not these polite little Methodist prayers where it's like a five-paragraph essay with a formal thesis and your three talking points and then a conclusion, and you wait until that one person's done and then the next person begins. It was passionate and it felt, it felt from the heart. As I got into my late teens, I began to question my motivation in prayer. Am I doing this because of some weird social pressure that only exists in these Pentecostal charismatic churches, these circles, uh, or do I really love God that much and this passion is just coming for me? And it began to complicate my prayer life. And I went to Oral Roberts University. Are you all ORU students? Okay, I thought so. Welcome. Glad you're here. Um, I went to ORU and I got an academic Bible degree, and so I'm studying things like source criticism, and it begins to professionalize my prayer life, and I'm thinking more and more about the theological content of my prayers, and, 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 and I'm overthinking it even more. Well, a couple years later, I get a job at a church, and I begin praying publicly on a regular basis, which adds this social dimension to my prayer life, further complicating it. And then I got a Master's of Divinity, and so, again, more education, and I'm overthinking my prayer life. And at a certain point, like, my prayer life just overheats and goes kaput, and I just kind of stop praying. And I would say over the last 10 years, I've been relearning to pray. And I shared this idea with our apprentice group, and my friend Jaden, who's here, uh, shared, uh, Jaden's a physical therapist, and she shared that, uh, like, when people are relearning to walk after an injury or a trauma, uh, you don't go straight to walking. You have to start with the more basic movements, and you ask, like, before you learn to walk, well, can you kneel? Is your body able to make those movements? And this morning, uh, you know, many of you, many of us have been in church our whole lives, and you'd think, surely by now, like fewer of us would raise our hands, but in asking the question this morning, can you pray, we'd be discovered to find that many of us feel like we can't or not in the way that we would hope to. And so this morning, we're going to sit at the feet of Jesus, just like the disciples did as we look at Matthew and Luke's account, and we're going to ask him to teach us how to pray. And we're going to start from scratch together. Before we look at the Gospels, I want to share a couple ideas of what I believe prayer is not, and then we're going to try to get a working definition for what prayer is. Prayer is not uh, performance art. It's not the kind of thing where someone gets up and you should like hold up a scorecard. That was a decent prayer. I give him a 9 out of 10. Uh, some of us are very aware when we pray publicly of how we're faring in front of others. We're praying uh, hoping not to be evaluated poorly, but prayer is not performance art. Similarly, prayer is not a crowd control device. This is what happens at family reunions or at Thanksgiving or when the church is late in arriving. You're like, okay, people won't shut up. How about this? Dear Jesus! <laughs> and people catch up. That's not, prayer is not meant to be used primarily as a crowd control device. 
Next, prayer is not just worrying out loud. It's not just journaling, journaling to the air. It's not just venting all of your concerns. Prayer is not a mechanical process. I have inserted my prayer into the first gear in the machine, and the cogs will work, and I get what I want every time. It's a machine. It works great. That's not prayer. And finally, prayer is not magic. It's not getting good juju with God. It's not like rubbing a magic lamp and hoping that the genie shows up and gives you what you deserve. That's not prayer. So that's not, if that's what prayer is not, what's a working definition of prayer? We'd say really simply, prayer is an attentive conversation between father and child about that which concerns us. Attentive conversations are hard to come by in our world right now. It happens a lot in our office where uh, I'm facing this direction and I'm on my computer and Nina is over here. She faces me and she's talking to me while I'm continuing to do my thing. And I'm like, uh-huh, yep, 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 sure. And then I realize she's waiting for my response. And so, okay, gosh, close the laptop, look at Nina. Okay, start over. I wasn't paying any attention. <laughs> An attentive conversation between father and child about that which concerns us. But this is not a conversation between just any father and any child. It's a conversation with our heavenly father, our divine father. Well, how do you have a conversation with our heavenly father? Uh, it's interesting, this, the, the Lord's Prayer is included in both Matthew and Luke's account. And in, Luke, in the Lucan version, it's preceded, Jesus giving the Lord's Prayer is preceded by a request from the disciples. Note this in uh, Luke 11. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, and let's leave that up there for just a minute, because I want you to notice three things about this, this short little passage. First thing, Jesus was praying. Jesus prayed. As we read the Gospels, he does that a lot. He goes off to a remote place to pray. He spends the evening on the mountainside with his father in prayer. If Jesus had to pray to make it, man, we need to pray. We need to pray. Last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 4 and the call of the first disciples and the launch of Jesus' ministry when he begins healing and masses and casting out demons. But what we notice is the beginning of Matthew chapter 4 is Jesus fasting and praying for 40 days in the wilderness. And that intense prayer balances or anchors the miracles we see doing in the Decapolis and the region around the Sea of Galilee and word spreads to places as far as Syria. The public life of Jesus was anchored by the private prayer life of Jesus. If Jesus prayed, we should pray. The second thing I want you to notice here is that both John the Baptist and Jesus taught their disciples to pray, which tells us that prayer is something that we learn to do, not something that we intuitively understand to do. Uh, it's, it's like we would be, you know, we, we tend to think about prayer like anyone can do it, but it's like playing the piano. You learn to play the piano. You don't sit down for the first time and you can do Mozart. Prayer is something that we learn to do. And then finally, the thing I want you to notice here is that when Jesus uh, was asked by his disciples to teach them to pray, he gave them a prayer. This then is how you should pray, our Father. Uh, Glenn Packiam is an author. He wrote a book called Discover the Mystery of Faith, pastor in Colorado, and he shared an experience about being on the worship team in his Christian college and having a rather interesting experience of prayer. He said, I couldn't believe what I was hearing or seeing. 
The guest preacher at our college chapel instructed all of us to stand, raise one hand in the air like we were reaching for a lever in the sky, and pull it down as we said the words, money cometh to me now. Why he phrased it in King James English, I shall never know. Finally, I was asked to head to the piano to play under his closing prayer. Prayer? This is prayer? This is the trouble, says Pacquiao with telling people to pray what's in their hearts, to just talk to God the way you talk to a friend. After decades of people never being taught how to pray, how to talk to the Creator and King of the world, we begin to pray in the language that comes to us most naturally. But selfishness is our mother tongue. Tell people to pray what's in their heart and they'll pray selfishly. They'll ask for stuff and plead for more and raise their hands to the sky to pull down an imaginary lever of prosperity, seeking satisfaction for their insatiable souls. Isn't it interesting that when the disciples asked Jesus to teach him how to pray, he didn't ask incredulously, teach you. You don't need anyone to teach you how to pray. Just pray. No. When his disciples asked him how to pray, he taught them. And more than that, he gave them a prayer. He gave them a prayer. In Matthew's account, the teaching on prayer comes in this broader conversation of the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly in chapter 6, Jesus is inviting his followers to cultivate a rich secret life, to, to pray in secret, to give in secret, to fast in secret. Versus praying and giving and fasting in order to be seen by others, to impress other people. And he says, if you pray in secret, your motivation being that your heavenly Father sees you, if you pray in secret, your unseen Father is going to reward you. But for those people who pray publicly with a motivation of being seen and give publicly with a motivation of being seen and fast publicly with the same motivation, all the reward they will get is the opinions of other people who think them spiritual. You've received your reward in full, says Jesus. But if you pray in secret, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This tells us that with the right motivation, there is an inherent reward in seeking God. That's what the author of Hebrews 11 said. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Dallas Willard, who I'm going to quote from a lot today, said this in Divine Conspiracy, affirming the same point. Prayer, like all of the practices into which Jesus leads by word and example, will be self-validating to all who simply pray as he says and don't give up. It's much harder to learn if we succumb to the temptation to engage in heroic efforts of prayer. You hear someone who prays and you're like, dang, I want to pray like that. She says, don't be enticed by the heroics, the, the prayer warriors. Just pray and here's how to do it. So prayer is an attentive conversation between father and child about that which concerns us. There's an inherent reward for those who pray earnestly and sincerely. We can learn to pray, but we have to be willing to learn. My favorite mad scientist, Edwin Friedman, says the unmotivated are invulnerable to insight. If you do not want to learn, this sermon is useless to you. You may as well head out early and go to lunch. 
But we can learn how to pray if you're willing to learn. And to learn, we have to practice, which means we have to be okay with stinking at it for a little while. I love music. It's a really big part of my life. And uh, sometimes when the band is prepping on Sunday mornings, I'll go to the organ and just kind of play around. Uh, It's really fun. There's an organ in this room, by the way. And uh, I took piano lessons as a kid, but my favorite instrument to play is the guitar. And when you're learning to play the guitar, it's very awkward to put your hand in these unnatural positions, and you're mashing down your soft fingers on these metal wires, and when you're first learning, it cuts into your fingers. You'll get, if you're playing the bass with those really thick strings, you'll get blisters on the ends of your fingers. Sometimes they'll crack, they'll cut, they'll bleed. And some people, like right then and there, just give up. They don't learn. Uh, But if you persevere, your body will actually begin to adapt to an awkward and a challenging situation. In time, you'll develop calluses on the tips of your fingers so that what was unnatural and uncomfortable becomes uh, your body uh, adjusts to it and absorbs it. And you get these calluses so that you can learn to play. But tons of people quit before they even have the chance to learn callus, to, to pick up calluses. And similarly, in the life of prayer, There's a certain need, we need to develop a kind of callous. We need to pray, endure long enough so that we can get used to the rhythms. But if we give up before we develop calluses, we miss out on the opportunity to learn the scales of prayer, the chords of prayer, to enjoy the music, the beautiful music of a, a rich prayer life and our life with God. So how can we use the Lord's Prayer, which may better be named the Disciples' Prayer, to teach us how to pray? I want to walk through it together. The Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, uh, comes down to an address and five requests, five asks of God. The address is the part that you already know, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Now, this, this language here does not mean our Father so removed from our everyday life. Uh, another way of translating it may be our Father who fills the heavens, A Father who's everywhere, even right here with me in my prayer closet or driving in the car. Or you could think of it in terms of our divine Father, our heavenly Father, a name that that connotes both intimacy and reverence, our divine Father. By beginning our prayer with an address, it makes it a conversation and not just a soliloquy, not just journaling and worrying out loud. By addressing this speech to God, to our Heavenly Father, we're making it a conversation. The name that we use says a lot about the person we're addressing and us and our relationship. If I were to walk into the Oval Office and say, uh, good morning, Mr. President, uh, it's, it's a, a title of recognizing the power in the room, the power imbalance that's in the room too. Um, when I talk to Emily, most of the time I'll call her sweetheart. And I've earned that right over 17 years of being together. It's, it's, it comes out of me. When I talk to my children, uh, my oldest, Libby, I'll call her Lib. Or Sam, I call Fred for some reason. I don't really know why. Gideon will say Giddy or Gidzy, Giddy Boy. And all of these terms express intimacy and familiarity or even playfulness. The name we use says something about our relationship. And Jesus says, in in instructing these crowds of people, address God as our heavenly Father, our divine Father. 
By making it a plural, it also means you're not mine alone, but I'm part of your people. I'm part of your family, our divine Father, our heavenly Father. By naming him as Father, it also names us as child. Before the service, one of my sons was really upset, and he came back in the room where I was, and he just crawled up in my lap. That's the picture, our heavenly Father. Um, Dallas Willard, in, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, says, before we even utter those words, there may be a little work of attentiveness that we need to practice. As I said, attentive conversations are hard to come by. He says, so maybe even before we begin worded prayer, our hearts need to be warmed up. We need to prime the pump. We need to imagine ourselves in relationship with our Heavenly Father to, to direct, actively, willfully direct our attention toward our Heavenly Father. And I think it's this attentiveness, this willed attentiveness before vocalized prayer that makes the difference between saying a prayer and actually praying. In this moment, I'm cognizant, Father, that you're with me. Otherwise, it's just like, that's why liturgies, uh, apart from the attentiveness of the heart, are useful for training, but unuseful if we're not putting ourselves into it. It's that willed action of, of directing our attention toward our Heavenly Father. So, uh, it may be useful to read a bit of Scripture to help you get there. This week, I was using this song, Open Space, that we sang as a way of just priming my heart, the language of my heart, to be in communion with the Father. As your heart is primed, then you can utter those words, Heavenly Father, Divine Father. Jesus said, Abba. And then that leads to the first request of the prayer, hallowed be your name. Okay, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word hallow? Halloween and? Somebody's going to say it. Sleepy, okay, sleepy hollow. There's another one I didn't expect. Come on, what's the other one? Harry Potter. That's it. The Deathly Hallows, yeah. Um, hallow is not a word we use a lot, churchy word. Uh, it means sanctified, set apart. When we say, hallowed be your name, we're saying, God, may your name be uniquely respected in all the world. May it be uh, sanctified and set apart. That's what Dallas Willard had to say about it. He said, this request is based upon the deepest need of the human world. Human life is not about human life. And nothing will go right in it until the greatness and goodness of its source and governor is adequately grasped. His very name is then held in the highest possible regard. Until that's so, the human compass will always be pointing in the wrong direction. And individual lives as well as history as a whole will suffer from constant and fluctuating disorientation. And candidly, that is exactly the condition we find ourselves in. To pray, our Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name, is a prayer of adoration of a kid who just adores their dad, the Divine Father. May your name be respected by everybody. But it's also a prayer of concern for our world because there's a recognition that there are places in our world that are not yet hallowing the name of God, unique, holding in a position of unique respect the name of God, and it is all the worse for it. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we're imaginatively dwelling on 
how and where the dishonor of God's name is leading to disorder in our world, and we're asking that God's name would be uniquely respected. Which leads to the second uh, petition, the second request in the disciples' prayer, which is linked. It's your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This request is that the hallowing of God's name in all of the world would lead to uh, the will of God and the justice of God being realized and enacted in all of the world. That what God wants is actually happening in our world. And so as we begin to, to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we begin to imaginatively think about where are there signs that God's kingdom is not fully realized in our world? You don't have to look very far. Where is there evidence of it in my heart? Where is there evidence of the, the absence of the realized reign of God in our neighborhoods? What about in the city of Tulsa as a whole? What about in the state of Oklahoma? Where is there evidence that God's name is being dishonored and it's leading to disorder? What about all of the corners of our world? We say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are actively inviting the reign of God, the love of joy, the love of God, the peace of God, the joy of God, the justice of God to come to bear in our world. Willard again. He says, we're thinking here of the places we spend our lives, homes, playgrounds, streets, workplaces, schools, and so on. They, these are the places we have in mind. They are where we're asking for the kingdom. God's rule to come, to be in effect. But we're also thinking of our activities more than those of other people. We know our weaknesses, our limitations, our habits, and we know how tiny our power of conscious choice is. So we're asking that by means beyond our knowledge and the scope of our will, that we would be assisted to act within the flow of God's actions. But we're also praying over the dark deeds of others and the world around us especially praying about the structural or institutionalized evils that rule so much of the earth. We therefore pray for our Father to break up these higher levels of evil, these higher level uh, patterns of evil. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The third request is pretty simple. Give us today our daily bread, or give us today what we need for today. And uh, this year, we've been reading through the whole Bible together, and in the first quarter of the year, we were in Exodus and Leviticus. And you remember the story as the people of Israel left slavery in Egypt, and they're on the road making their way to the promised land. It's not like they can forage very effectively to feed a great nation walking this great distance. And so every day along with the dew, the people would go out and they would find this bread from heaven called manna, and it, and it met their needs for the day. If they tried to, to hoard it and keep some for tomorrow, it would be covered in maggots and it turned turn gross. But if they trusted God for today, they could always count on manna coming today. Jesus says, give us today what we need for today. He says elsewhere in the sermon, you're going to be inclined toward worrying about tomorrow, but tomorrow's got enough trouble of its own. God's here today, right now. Ask Him for what you need today. 
This certainly thing covers the, like our body. We need water. We need food. We need, we need, um, we need a shelter. But I think it, we can imagine more broadly, what do you need? Um, in a new church, we're, we're only 18, 20 months old as a church. There's tons to do. I need, I need energy and drive and decision-making power. I get tired of making decisions. Uh, when I go home at the end of the day, I'm pretty tired and I want to be present to Emily. I want to be present to our children. I, gosh, I need patience. I need empathy for Emily who's been with the kids all day. I need uh, self-control and not lose my temper because I can't uh, get my children to do what I want the first time. I desperately need that stuff today. It's asking him for it. What do you need today that you want to ask him for? Not for tomorrow. But give me today what I need for today. The fourth request, um, when I was growing up, this is how we said it in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. We typically say trespasses. But this is a place for dealing with the issue of sin and wrongdoing in relationship. First in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, uh, forgive me the stuff, the sins that I've done. Uh, we know from 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just, and he'll forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess he's just, he'll forgive and he'll purify, he'll make us new if we confess. Embedded in the, in the disciples' prayer is a confession of sin. Dang it, I did it again. I thought it again. I clicked on it again. I didn't do it again. There's a space to confess our sins to our Heavenly Father, an invitation would you, would you have pity on me? Would you have mercy on me? Because dang it, I, I did it again. I'm sorry. But then it also says, as we forgive our debtors, I don't like that part quite so much. Because it gives the sense of show mercy on me in the same measure or in the same way that I'm forgiving and having pity on and showing mercy to all of these other people who have wronged me. Willard uh, has an interesting observation on this. He said, it's not psychologically possible for us to really know God's pity for us and at the same time be hard-hearted toward others. So we're forgiving others in the same manner as God forgives us. That's part of our prayer. We're not just promising or resolving to forgive, however. We're praying for help to forgive. Help to not, like, desire the delayed, like, the punishment inflicted by us toward other people. We're praying for help to forgive others. For though it's up to us to forgive, we do it. We know we can't do it without help. It's a request for God to have pity on us, but also an invitation for us to have pity and to learn to practice forgiveness toward other people. Jesus says, don't judge or you too will be judged. In the same manner you judge, you will be judged yourself. In the same manner. It creates an atmosphere of charity, an atmosphere of pity toward each other because we, are no, we know we're, just, we're beneficiaries of the forgiveness and the grace and the kindness of Jesus. We should extend that to other people. It creates an atmosphere of pity. And then the final request is a bit unexpected. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is, a, in the most basic form, a request that bad things not happen to us, that hard stuff not happen to us. After the first service, someone came up to me, sisters, 
And they shared that last week they were here with their dad, and their dad passed away this week. Uh, they, they had a deep grief and deep loss. We're asking God, we're fragile little creatures. Will you spare us from suffering? Will you spare us from the really hard stuff of life? Because events like that can rattle your faith. Uh, it's, it's asking God, like, I know I'm fragile. Can you spare me? And thinking about it like that, it makes you wonder, how many times have I already been spared and I don't even know about it? How many times has he graciously spared me and I didn't even think to say thank you? We could just scan through all of our driving histories and think about how close we came which, to a car wreck that could have been a fatality, could have been the end of our story in grief for our families and the people who loved us. How many times did we come close to that thing happening? You were supposed to go on a trip and then something terrible happened and you realized that was meant to be me. How many times have we already been spared and not returned to say thank you? It's, it's a recognition. We're fragile. Would you keep me from going through the really hard stuff? As I've been practicing the prayer, I think about it quite practically for my family. Emily and our children are going to be in cars. Would you, would you keep my family from car wrecks today? Would you keep us from diagnoses today? Would you keep us from the unthinkable you know, the phone call that brings you to your knees today, God, would you just help us to stand up even under temptation? We always end with the Lord's Prayer with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's omitted from Matthew and Luke. It's like uh, we see the first signs of it in the, the earliest manuscripts are in the second and third century. It's in a book called the Didache that is really pretty great, but didn't make it into our Bible. And it's like the church needed, like, we need a doxology. We need a, a glorious crescendo at the end of this. And so by tradition, we tend to include for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. But that it's not included in the text makes it all the more remarkable that this is a pretty short prayer. Jesus said, don't babble on like the pagans, thinking you can grab God's attention in that way. Just, here you go, just say, hey, address him. Make your requests known and trust that he sees what you're doing in secret. One address and five asks, five requests of God. We can learn how to pray in this way. One of my favorite things is I love going to Canes and seeing concerts because you can get really up close to the musicians and see them. And NPR has this series called the Tiny Desk Concerts, and they usually have the most obscure people you've never heard of. Uh, makes for fun surprises sometimes. And, you know, popular people go through it as well. And one of my favorites was uh, the cellist Yo-Yo Ma played at Tiny Desk. And uh, Yo-Yo Ma is this prolific cellist. And uh, one of his most famous pieces is, is Bach's Unaccompanied Cello Suite. And you've heard at a million weddings uh, the suite number one in G major. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, it's really pretty. And uh, he was going on this tour where he had re-recorded all of the unaccompanied cello suites and stopped by the NPR Tiny Desk to give a concert. And he plays this piece and people are moved. And afterward, he shares, he says, he began playing cello at four years old and this was the piece he started with. Week one, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Week two, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. 
week three and week four and so on. And now 58 years later, he's still playing the same thing, but it started with just figuring out how to hold the bow and how, where, to, where to put your fingers and the little movements. Da, 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 da. One bar at a time. He's been playing this music his whole life, and he said, you know, some days when you're learning, it's easier than others. But you realize it's actually not painful to learn something if you do it incrementally. Do it a little bit at a time. And he's playing the same thing 58 years later that he learned when he was four years old. He started with it, but he's grown with it. Now, he's learned to play other pieces since. And similarly, we can pray in other ways. But look at what Willard says. He says, there's, of course, much more to pray than the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer that teaches us to pray. It's the foundation of the praying life. It's introduction and continuing basis. It's an enduring framework for all praying. You only move beyond it, provided you stay within it. It's the necessary base in the great symphony of prayer. It's a powerful lens through which one constantly sees the world as God himself sees it. And all of this you know, suggests with, with Yoyaman practicing incrementally the power of compounding interest, the, the power of starting simply, a humble beginning, and learning bit by bit how to pray. You've heard people give the, the hypothetical situation, would you rather be given a million dollars in one month, or would you rather be given a, a penny a day one, but that amount doubles every day for 30 days? If anyone offers you that, take the penny. Uh, if, you, if you follow the penny rule, it, at the end of the month, 30 days, it gives you $5,368,709.12. And it shows the power of, of incremental growth, of compounding interest. Our tiny behaviors every day shape us into the person that we are. Getting the Frappuccino every day instead of the Americano is literally shaping you into the person that you're becoming. Small choices over time add up. So you may have raised your hand at the beginning and said, I, my prayer life is not where I want it to be. That's okay. None of our prayer lives are where we want it to be. But how can you get started? Last week, as we were talking about the call of Jesus to the disciples, I challenged you to just resolve in your heart that you're going to be a person who follows Jesus. I'd urge you this week to resolve in your heart to learn how to pray. And I would challenge you to not overthink it or overcomplicate it, but to start simply, but to start on purpose. Pick a time, pick a space. Maybe it doesn't need to last longer than 60 seconds for you. Maybe your first three months of learning to pray, you don't even touch the Lord's Prayer, and you practice for two minutes just directing your attention to God. Attentive conversations are hard to come by. Maybe just showing up, maybe just having tried for two minutes a day. My friend Andrew, a couple of weeks, talked about the principle of the first 15, using the first 15 minutes of your day for, for silence and prayer and scripture reading. Maybe you need to work on the first 15 seconds for about a month and then graduate from there. But use the prayer that Jesus gave. He said, this is how you should pray. 
Let yourself off the hook from being a, spiritually, a spiritual giant or being a hero of prayer, a prayer warrior. Just start simply. And your Father, who sees what you're doing in secret, will reward you. This, then, is how you should pray. Let's do pray together. And to mix it up, keep your eyes open. And as, as I'm going to lead in prayer, just direct your attention to God. I'm going to look around at you, because I remember Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, he's there. I'm going to look at you. Maybe you'd look up. Jesus often prayed, looked up to the heavens and prayed. Maybe you'd look at the cross. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to come to the table. So, Heavenly Father, you, you're with us, and you love all of the people in this room. You care for us. Thank you. We're really forgetful people. We try really hard. We've got great intentions, but our follow-through stinks. And so we just, we need divine assistance to just take a, a step in the right direction. So would you help me, and would you help all of us, Jesus, uh, to, to begin to learn how to pray. Remind us, help us to feel your ear, your desire just to hear from us. We trust you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.